You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the AUKUS Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. My name is Jesse Wolfset. I'm an arthroplasty surgeon hailing from Mount Sinai Hospital in the University of Toronto. It's a pleasure to bring you another Legends of Arthroplasty podcast. My name is Peter Gold. I'm a joint replacement surgeon in Denver, Colorado at Panorama Orthopedics. And I'm Brian Chalmers coming to you from uh, the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. And it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest for today's episode of The Augment. I'm honored to, to be able to call him a colleague and mentor. He has been influential in the training and careers of hundreds of young surgeons and has been active in academics, AUKUS, and research for many, many years. Furthermore, he has been newly appointed as Surgeon-in-Chief of the Hospital for Special Surgery, and we welcome Dr. Doug Padgett. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks, Brian. So, Dr. Padgett, we just wanted to start off, learn a little bit more about your initial exposure to orthopedics and why you decided to pursue a career in arthroplasty. Well, thanks, Peter. It's really been an incredible journey for me. I don't want to belabor it, but my original interest in surgery actually began because I thought I was going to be the next greatest tumor surgeon. And when I was in medical school, I wanted to do a rotation at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center on their surgical oncology service. But as a non-Cornell student, I didn't have the opportunity to actually get a rotation on the solid tumor service or the sarcoma service. So I got stuck on something called the bone tumor service. And I have to confess, I didn't really realize that uh, bones got tumors. So it was at that point, I had the good fortune of meeting Joe Lane and a young surgeon by the name of John Healy. And they really fueled my passion and interest in, in orthopedics. Upon completion of medical school, I did a year as a general surgery resident. And then I spent a year on active duty with the United States Marine Corps, traveled the world, got to meet some very interesting people and came back. And it was at that point, I put my application in for orthopedics and I had the good fortune of matching in my residency at HSS. thought orthopedics was largely involved fracture care and a little bit of what I learned during my general surgery rotations on uh, trauma and surgery of the hand. But once I was at HSS, I really had my eyes open to all of the disciplines in orthopedics, sports medicine, spine surgery, foot and ankle. But I think what really intrigued me at that point was the joint replacement service. The time is in the mid-1980s at this point, and uh, the real, what I would consider giants of joint replacement, were all at HSS. John Insel was the head of the knee service. Eduardo Salvati and Phil Wilson were leading the hip service at that time. And the surgical arthritis service was split between uh, Alan Ingalls as well as Chit Ranawat. So I was really had the good fortune of being exposed to joint replacement by these giants in an emerging field at that point. It was really the epicenter and ground zero of some of the earliest developments in terms of both hip and knee arthroplasty. As part of the residency program, we were actually required to take an eight-week rotation on biomechanics I actually had no formal training in engineering, but I was introduced to bioengineering by Al Burstein and a young colleague of his by the name of Tim Wright. And that relationship has now spanned over 30 years. They have instilled in me an interest in, quite frankly, problem solving. I remember asking Tim one day, I said, what do engineers do? 
He said, that's easy. We solve problems. And I said, boy, that sounds great. Sounds very simple. It was a simple answer. It's a complicated path to get there, but that was sort of my exposure. I had the good fortune of doing my fellowship with George Galante. At that time, cementless fixation was really in its infancy. That year in Chicago, working with Jorge Galante, Aaron Rosenberg, Josh Jacobs, early in his career, was enlightening. It really showed me the right ways to do both basic science as well as translational research. And it really set the stage for me. So that was my path into joint replacement. After I completed my fellowship, I was in San Diego. I had three more years of obligated service at the Naval Hospital in San Diego, which was transformational for me. It was instant practice. I had a wonderful clinic, great support, and a lot of the skills that I learned as both a resident and fellow, I had the opportunity to apply. And I think that's something that I encourage young surgeons to do early in their career, not necessarily in the first year or two of your practice, should you be trying something that's completely novel and new, keep your eyes open and your ears open to new techniques and new technologies. But I would say hone your skills as a surgeon early in your career. You had the opportunity to train probably with some really terrific individuals but hone those skills for the first couple of years, but then always keep your eyes and ears open to new possibilities, new techniques, new technologies. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. You know, I think you touched on a lot of the things we'll kind of flush out even more during the next 20, 30 minutes or so. You mentioned a lot of the people early on that you were training under, you know, great leaders and forefathers of arthroplasty, like Dr. Salvati, Dr. Ranawa, Dr. Insall, Dr. Galante. Was there anyone specific that you gravitated to or was it, did you take things from all of them and kind of mold yourself into kind of a style of kind of a little bit of what they all did or what did you kind of see in them that made you inspired to be like them in the future? That's a great question. I think that what I've done and probably fashioned my career is a little bit of something from each of the folks that you just mentioned. I think the inquisitive mind of a John Insult. John, when I was a resident as a third year, fourth year, and fifth year on the knee service, was actually interested in, in your thoughts, would ask you, and as I like to say, the seven easiest cuts on a knee replacement, i.e. cutting the patella. Here was the father of modern knee surgery. I'd say, do you think there's a better way to do this? And I thought it was a trick question, but I would even occasionally watch John Insel of all people struggle sometimes resurfacing a patella. I learned a lot from George Galante. I think George saw the perfect marriage of basic science and translating it into the practicality. Again, the first applications of cementless fixation. And so that intersection of benchtop research and clinical care coming together in the translational side was perfect for me. Dr. Wilson was a lifelong mentor for me. He always had a, a saying about just make sure you do the right thing. It's all about patient care. And I've tried to be true to that. I learned a lot from Chit Ranawat. Finally, Chit was an incredible teacher, an incredible thinker, and always reminded us that any good classification system can have no more than three subcategories. If it's beyond that, it gets too confusing. So he used to say that and hold up three fingers at the time. So I still am in touch with Dr. Ranawat. He's doing well. He's uh, since retired from clinical practice but he's still forever asking me questions. And I'm always a little nervous when Dr. Ranawat starts to ask me questions, even 30 years later. So I think I've taken that approach. He was very much a Socratic teacher. And uh, I think, Brian, you can attest to that when uh, I would run conference at HSS. It was engagement by all. And some of the things that I learned 
from Aaron Rosenberg about giving a good talk, he always would remind me, don't forget the three E's. A good talk needs to be educational, engaging, and entertaining. And if you hit on all three of those elements, people will say, boy, that was a great talk. And so Aaron was the best. And so a little bit from all of my mentors, as I look back, and I think I can give them a lot of credit for making me who I am today. It's awesome, Hill. Dr. Paget, it's really amazing hearing you talk about all these titans of arthroplasty and orthopedics, and it's just amazing you had the opportunity to learn and work with them as a partner. I'll just touch on one thing that you mentioned about John Insall, you know, challenging, challenging you to think of better ways to do things. And so my question to you is, how has your approach to knee replacement changed over your career? You know, it's gone up and down. I think I can share with the group. I was trained in the classic posterior stabilized cemented knee. I left my residency not knowing any other way to do it. I went to Chicago and learned how to do cementless total knees. And these were CR knees. And it was just a total paradigm shift in the way that I approached things. So I was a little confused when I finally finished my fellowship because I'd had three or four years of learning how to do cemented posterior stabilized knees in New York and now cementless fixation and CR knees in in Chicago. So I actually did a little bit of both when I went to San Diego and you'll have to forgive me, this was not on any official IRB study, but we just made it a practical approach that every other week, one week we would do CR knees, the second week we would do poster stabilized knees. And I had the opportunity to follow patients out for about three years. Uh, I did learned some things the hard way, one of which was that I think I was putting my CR knees in probably a little too loose, which led to a publication that we wrote about late flexion instability in CR knees. (laughs) I didn't do that intentionally, but uh, it just sort of (laughs) led to that. And so my thinking as it relates to knee arthroplasty has evolved. I think there's a role for cementless fixation. I think it's patient selection. I think the modern day surface characteristics of the implants is much better. I think patient selection is better. I think the bearing surfaces are better. There's no doubt about that as well. I am intrigued with the newer bearing constructs, medial pivot knees, the sort of deep dish types of articulations, I think promoted by Aaron Hoffman and Mike Bolognese. So I think there's a lot out there. I think in the final analysis, most, if not all, can be done well, but they're still very technique dependent. There's no question about that. Could you take us kind of into the room with Dr. Galante and kind of the conversations you guys were having when you're developing the cementless fixations? Like what were the struggles? What things were you guys surprised about and excited about, you know, in, in terms of in terms of um, you know building that model? So I think the one thing that I loved about George is that he thought about that construct, even from the early work that he had done using uh, uncemented titanium fiber mesh rods that he inserted in baboons. But he was always very, very cautious about introducing new technology because of the potential for the what you could probably describe as the unknown unknown, what was would be the possible effect. He It was amazing how concerned he was because of the large surface area of uncemented titanium implants that the challenge it may pose to the human being, what would it, what would be the effect on the immune system? What would be the local effect? And so it was interesting. He developed that technology and he did the large animal studies and actually never brought it to market for close to 10 years. He wanted to see 
and he was recording metal ion levels and the like. So patient safety was the top of mind whenever he did that. He then got to the point where he felt comfortable. And then it was the application of these technologies to the various surfaces. One of his closest friends was a fellow by the name of Joe Miller. Dr. Miller was up in Montreal at the Montreal General Hospital for a number of years. And they came out with one of the first uncemented knee replacements, the original Miller Galante knee. And again, what I learned from George was a little bit about the kinematics of that type of articulation. It was unfortunately a bit of a round on flat articulation, which did have its own unique, I think, downsides. But the other aspect had to do with the cementless fixation in and of itself, what would be the right technique, surface preparation. He was extremely meticulous about that and very selective in terms of those patients. So it was just fascinating to make that leap from, as I described, from my residency using traditional cemented implants to uncemented fixation. Amazing. Dr. Padgett, your journey from the military to HSS and back to the military and in San Diego and then back again to HSS really is fascinating. Definitely not the typical pathway for most academic or orthopedic surgeons. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience in the military and perhaps how that experience has influenced you as a surgeon and a hospital leader? Yeah, thanks, Jesse, for that question. I think I learned different things at different time points. My first experience in the military, I was what was called a battalion surgeon. So my resume at that point was I was a graduate of a U.S. medical school, and I did one year of a general surgery internship. When you're a battalion surgeon, you effectively are functioning like a general medical officer. So I was embarked with 2,000 Marines. I had a small medical department of what we'll call a corpsman, essentially medical assistants. And I did everything from daily sick call. So I had to take care of regular things, colds and flus. We were deployed a couple of times. People would go to strange lands and get all sorts of GI problems and things like that. I had to oversee the disposal of human waste, which was something I had never realized that I needed to do. But my experience in the Marine Corps was outstanding because I learned the concept of making the most of what you have stop complaining, and the organizational skills. It's extremely well delineated in terms of the structure. And I've even to this day continued to use it as a role model. Having that sort of structure, whether you're running a local meeting, whether or not you're running a small department or a section or something like that, having a good solid table of organization and having some degree of repetition of the steps that you do, I think is extremely useful. After I did and completed my residency and did my fellowship, my second stint in at this point, I was um, at the Naval Hospital in San Diego. They have their own residency program. It's an outstanding program. I was a, what was called a Navy scholarship student. So the Navy had paid for medical school. And this was part of my obligated service. That program attracts the highest caliber men and women. I could not be prouder. I've been back a couple of times as a visiting professor. Some of my trainees at HSS in our own fellowship have gone back. One of them is currently the head of the section of adult reconstruction. Another one went on to become the surgeon general in the Navy. So it was a great opportunity to meet a lot of people. 
What I learned there, though, it was, was also how do you run a clinic, how to best administer using the resources you have, taking care of the patients. We actually did a number of randomized trials that were there well, during the time that I was there. And it was a great period in my life. And I, I look back and have fond memories. So we still maintain a pretty close connection to the armed services. We make it a point to put many of the young men and women that are looking for fellowship training as well as residency training. We look at them with a certain second look for sure, because we think that we do have an obligation to help train the best and the brightest, but also look after the fine men and women that work for the armed services of the United States. Really incredible. I guess this may be a silly question, but how close were you to Miramar? And did you ever get a chance to go to the Top Gun Naval Academy? So we lived at the end of the runway on Miramar. It's funny that you asked. So my wife and I and my three kids, we lived in a town called Scripps Ranch. And that is literally right at the end of the runway. So we would watch. And at the time, it was predominantly the F-14 fighter force. We would watch them make those sharp turns and then head to land the planes. And it was absolutely fabulous. Once or twice a year, the Blue Angels would come in town. That's the precision flying team. And I swear they would seemingly be about 50 feet over my house where they were making these turns. And it was uh, great. I did spend a bit of time at Miramar, probably for the wrong reason, because they had a wonderful golf course that I took advantage of during my three years there. So it was really a lot of fun. So it was a great community. San Diego was a great place to live. But I had aspirations for, I'd say, bigger and better things. And I was fortunate enough to be asked by Dr. Wilson to come back to HSS as part of their recruiting scheme. So it was a great opportunity and I would never do anything different looking back. So around what time did you come back to to HSS and kind of how did all that go down and what was HSS like at the time? So this is the 30th anniversary of my coming back to HSS. I came back in 1993. It's hard to believe it's gone by extremely quickly. And I think this is important for anyone who's listening to this podcast. It's nice to be wanted and it's nice to have people want you to do something. And if you can find that niche, I was fortunate because there were two things that they were in need of. Number one, they needed they being the hospital and the hip service, the knee service. And at the time, it was still called the Comprehensive Arthritis Program Service, which is now the Surgical Arthritis Service. They needed people to cover the clinics. So these were charity clinics. They were typically once or twice a week, and then you would cover the operating room as well. And then the other ask was for me to cover the VA, since I was coming from a relationship with the military. So I spent a lot of time uh, driving back and forth to the Bronx, taking care of our veterans up there. Uh, It was a little bit of general orthopedics. I still would do some occasional shoulder arthroscopy and the ACL reconstructions, which I describe as nothing more than making two tunnels and pulling a piece of ligament or tendon through those tunnels. How hard could that possibly be? Um, (laughs) As well as what I'd like to consider real surgery, which is what we do, hip and knee replacement. <laughs> That's right. That's great. You know, Dr. Padre, obviously, you know, you're well known and I think throughout the country and, and definitely at this hospital for being a, a, an excellent educator. 
you know, your office is right by the, the fellow's office. And I think you've made sure that that's been the case for many, many years. And so I think for me, you know, starting in my fourth year of practice, one of the harder things that I didn't anticipate to be harder was actually, te- you know, teaching and educating and, and learning when to kind of give up the reins in the operating room and, and how to kind of guide people in while also keeping patients safe. And I've been fortunate, as you have, to have excellent mentors. And I found that harder for me than I was anticipating that happening. You know, you talked about your time in the Navy and starting the adult reconstruction education program there. And then obviously you've been very influential, like I've said here. Is that something that kind of came natural to you or what did you find challenging about that or something you had to work on or was it forced into you or did you always kind of have a passion for that? Brian, that's a great question. It would go back and forth. So during my training, again, I had the good fortune of spending months with Chet Ranawad. And when you were with Dr. Ranawad, you were clearly watching a master surgeon at work. I do want to underscore you were watching a master surgeon at work. The highlight of the case is this was back in the day when he was closing the skin with interrupted nylons. You closed your half of the wound and you also got to write orders and dictate the case. And so that was my experience working with the master. On the other end of the spectrum, there were attendings at the hospital for special surgery that would poke their head in and just say, hey, doc, looks like you got this. Keep going. So it was interesting. I think I've fallen somewhere between the two. I think that I like to be present. I think making sure at the initiation of the case, I do a a survey of the room. Number one, I want to see who's giving anesthesia, just so I know if there's a problem. Uh, Number two, I want to make sure all the instruments are there, okay? Because sometimes, as you may be aware, all of a sudden you get started in a case and stuff is missing, and that is a terrible time to be putting things on pause. I like to look at my x-rays again, make sure that I have in my mind what the plan is. As you know, Brian, I spent a lot of time doing preoperative planning, drawing. I am definitely old school when it comes to templating. You'll be happy to know this, Brian. I'm doing a combination of both electronic templating as well as though I love those acetates and that's just the way that I am. And then finally, with the complex cases, I do some old school, what the guys in the AO organization would do. I would do little cutouts, I would do everything from if I needed to do an osteotomy or corrective osteotomy, and I would be able to play that the night before surgery, a couple of days before surgery. And I think that that's the key. I think what's important is to make sure when I'm dealing with residents and fellows at this point, go through the steps. And I'm always curious and to say, what would you do? How would you do it differently? What's plan A? What's in plan B? It's a graduated, I, I think, responsibility that the trainees, I think, are fortunate to have. They've got to demonstrate attention to detail, preparation, and before. And I think the ability to do increasingly more and having increasingly more responsibility during the surgical case is contingent upon you being ready to go to the next level. And I think that's what I've been using over time. I'm always going to be there. I'm probably a little bit of a mother hen. I get it. It's the way I am. But I think it sits well with me. And at the end of the day, I can honestly tell patients that I was there from start to finish when you had your surgery done. And so it's my level of comfort in that. And it works for me. It may be different for different people, but it seems to work for me. Given that you're now, if my math is correct, 
about 35 years into your career, what still inspires you on a daily basis and keeps you going? I would say there's a few things. Number one is the satisfaction of taking care of patients. So today happened to be a patient day. My life is a little topsy-turvy now with about 50% of my time going to meetings on financial budgets and new buildings and lots of different aspects as it relates to leading the HSS medical staff at this point. What I've now come to realize is that the real fun part of what we do is patient care. It's fun to do surgery. There's no question. It's always a mixed bag, seeing patients in follow-up, right? The first couple of months after total knee variable, some patients are predictable. They're miserable. I always tell them that you're going to be miserable. You're going to be worse before you get better. The fascinating part is why isn't that everyone? And the ones that come in and said, you know, you told me this was going to be a terrible experience. And it really, you made it sound a lot worse than it was. That's the intriguing part. You know, I was asked once recently about what the next greatest thing in joint arthroplasty is going to be. Is it implant design? And I think I would probably best describe it as that the next greatest thing is going to be process delivery and process care. So looking at how we get patients in effectively, selecting the right patients. Brian is involved and some of our colleagues at HSS and using predictive modeling. I envision a day that, again, patients will really have the tools for themselves to determine, quite frankly, when they're ready for surgery via education. The process of going to the operating room and having the right instrumentations in a streamlined effect, having teams of people that are well-versed in what we do, doing things in an efficient manner. And I think it's important to remind people that, you know, efficiency is an engineering term and time is not a component of efficiency. It's less work. That's what efficient is. It's less work. That's the true definition. And so doing things that require less work may result in a shortened period of time, but it's not an absolute, right? But it's doing things with less work, being more efficient. I'm intrigued with technology. I was probably the last person in the world that ever got interested in navigation. And then out of nowhere, one of my other mentors, Larry Dorr, got me involved with a little company called Mako. And that was one of the most enjoyable rides in my life, being on the ground floor with that, seeing how that program evolved, the application to hip surgery, being in an industrial garage down in Hollywood, Florida, on steamy (laughs) summer days, operating on cadavers and having 35 people, 15 of whom were computer engineers, trying to make the haptic arm too loose or too tight and they were writing code in simultaneously half of them couldn't even speak english i mean it was absolutely fascinating and then bringing that to market was just so much fun so much fun and now here we are 10 plus years later i still use the robot selectively i've been accused of being a luddite recently because i've (laughs) kind of abandoned. It's not true. I haven't abandoned the use of technology. I'm just questioning like I did 30 years ago, everything that we do. And I do believe that there's better technology on the horizon. I'm just looking for it. 
So yeah, those were some of the best days of my life. Those validation studies that we did, some down in Florida, some in the basement at the hospital for special surgery as well, Brian. <laughs> yeah. I think you did the you did the first Makos here in actual practice, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. That's great. That'd be a great, great ride and experience. And then, you know, probably very fulfilling to see something that you helped develop kind of take off, obviously, and and you know, explode and around the country. Yeah, I think the the best the best satisfaction that brings a smile to my face was to you know to convince probably seven or eight of my closest friends at the hospital for special surgery who told me ten years ago I was crazy, who are now knocking on my door say why can't we buy another robot? And I said wait I remember you I remember you from ten years ago you said I was crazy for doing this so anyway it's all in good fun yeah that's great. Could you talk to a little bit about, you know, kind of your involvement with AUKUS or other specialty societies, which one of them have really kind of filled you up the most and really kind of fill your cup when you get to go to certain meetings or have certain interactions and kind of a two-part question. So which one of those societies and stuff, you know, really excites you and what about them excite you? And then how do you balance family life and practice with all the things that you do? Here, those are great questions. So a couple of things. Early in my career, once I got bitten by the arthroplasty bug, I was on a mission. I was going to be the president of the Hip Society one day. This was, I was 30 something years old. This is my aspiration. I was out in San Diego and I happened to meet an adult reconstruction surgeon by the name of Richard Santori. And I told Dr. Santori exactly what I wanted to do. I said, you know, I want to be a member of the Hip Society and all of this. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, look, there's this great organization called AUKUS. You should start there. It's perfect. It's relatively new in its infancy. It's going to be a great opportunity. Be involved with some of the committee structures in AUKUS. And that will be the training ground. And it was probably some of the best advice that I ever had in my life. So I went to the original AUKUS meetings, got involved, became a member, was a member of a couple of different committees over the years, started to network, which was really important in your career, especially if you have aspirations for further involvement with AUKUS or the hip and the knee societies. And some of my closest friends are outside the four walls of the hospital for special surgery. I got involved with the academy as well got involved with the Learning Center, spent a lot of time on those cold winter nights in Chicago with my good friends, Rob Truesdale and Mark Pagnano, and reeking of cadaveric specimens while I was taking the plane home in New York, while we're teaching courses on basic technology, the resident course at the Learning Center as well. But being involved early on in AUKUS and then the Orthopedic Learning Center sort of set the stage. The hip and knee societies are wonderful societies. They are largely focused on a lot of academia. So if that is really the destination where you'd like to go, get started early, do important research that answer and solve real world problems, gets back to the engineering approach for sure. Do I have a favorite? They're like my kids. I love them all. I probably love them a little differently, but I have a fond affection for all of them. I just got back from the Nice Society meeting, which was in Monterey, California. It was fantastic. 
it was interesting. There were seven papers on patella resurfacing, which is odd, just out of nowhere, all asking very pertinent questions about everything from fixation, shape, technique, whatever. And so being involved in that keeps you stimulated. I take notes when I'm ever at these meetings, say, ah, here's another research idea. Let me think about this, bring it back home, see if we can answer that. How do you balance that experience and that desire and those aspirations with your family life? Family is really important to me. I've been happily married for 36 years. And in the end, you need your support group. I think having your family, your spouse, I'm fortunate to be blessed with three wonderful children. My oldest daughter decided late in life to go back to nursing school. She finished her nursing degree during the height of the pandemic and worked at a very large inner city hospital here. It made her tougher than I ever thought she could be. And uh, I'm unbelievably proud of her. But we spent a lot of time with my two boys as well. And I'm very fortunate they live within about a 25 mile radius of where I currently am. So it's important. You have to balance that. I'd also like to put a plug in for that personal wellness. Just remember it's physical wellness and mental wellness. Burnout is a real issue. And sometimes you need to recognize that you might need help. And I think it's important to have that right support at your own institution Sometimes it's in the form of coaches, sometimes in the different shapes and different forms, but the concept of wellness can't be understated. And again, we are in one of the most stressful jobs and professions that exist. The demands are huge, the financial demands, certainly during the pandemic, I saw it in many of my partners, those financial demands led to emotional insecurity and it's understandable. And that emotional insecurity can oftentimes lead to physical ailments as well. So I think uh, having a support group, I applaud this particular group for having this group of young arthroplasty surgeons getting together to be a sounding board for one another, because I think you can accomplish great things together. It's a lot harder to do it as a single individual. So again, congratulations to all of you for all everything you're doing. Thanks so much. Thanks for mentioning the mental wellness piece. It's something really, really important to me. And, you know, we've all had colleagues who have really struggled with that. And, and so I really appreciate you bringing that up. It's super, super important. It's something that all of us, you know, need to pay more attention to. Yeah. You know, Peter has, has done quite a bit of work in this. He had a symposium at the Academy meeting last year. And Peter's work in that arena is ongoing and, and really influential and helpful. So we really appreciate you mentioning that. Given your incredible success as an administrator, a leader, clinician, researcher, it's, it's probably hard to identify one singular accomplishment, but if there's one thing that you could sort of point to as your lasting legacy from your 35, 40 years in practice, what would you consider that to be? What's your greatest accomplishment or success? So I would say, first of all, being fortunate enough to be picked out of a lineup by my current wife all those years ago was one of the greatest <laughs> accomplishments in my life. I just didn't realize it at the time. In all seriousness, just like in my personal life, my family, my children are the pride of my existence. It's the young men and women that I've had the good fortune of working with and training over the years. They are an extension of my professional family. And I think that connectivity is so important for giving me the inspiration to get up in the morning, 
just the satisfaction of seeing the men and women that I had the good fortune of working with over many years at a meetings at like the Academy, at AUKUS, any other meeting, and seeing how successful that they have been in their career. It would oftentimes bring back great memories and you'd be extremely fond of the times when some of your trainees would reach out and call you up about a specific problem, a complicated case. How would you handle that? I don't get much of that anymore, uh, largely because I let the really complicated cases be done now by Dr. Chalmers and people of his help <laughs> that are really stimulated by the complexity and operating at 11 p.m. at night. Right. But what I do get are questions about life. How do you manage this? What do you do? Here's the work-life balance. What do you think I should do? And I think back because those were the questions that I spent more time speaking to Dr. Wilson about. And while he was still alive, Dr. Galante, every time I called George Galante, he'd always ask me the same thing. Before I, I could even get a word in, he'd say, how's your family? It's the first thing he would always ask me. It was the most important thing to him. And just, I think, put things in perspective. So it's great. And I do the same thing now. And so it's a lot of fun. It's meaningful. I have a few more years in me and I'm excited. New role is a little challenging. I didn't go to business school, but I still know that two plus two was four. And I know that <laughs> if you're spending five and you're bringing in three, you're in the hole for two. And I didn't need to go to Harvard Business School to figure that out. So, uh, <laughs> Well, great. Now you have to put on your magician hat or your crystal ball hat and, and kind of give us some advice or prediction of what you think the future of orthoplasty looks like. I know you kind of talked earlier about that you think one of the biggest advances is going to be processes and how people are chosen and delivered a care. Anything specific or even just general such as that that you think is going to make the biggest impact in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years in orthoplasty? I think we're on the cusp for payment reform in a lot of different ways. I think that's what we need to be ready for. I think the case for value-based care is there and it's going to become ever more evident. There's going to be winners, there's going to be losers. And I think being involved at your local level with your hospital, with your ASC, with your group and preparing for the future, I think is a reality. We're starting to see that now. We have third-party payers that are demanding that we are recognized as centers of excellence. That's creating a very interesting little cottage industry. Whether you like it or don't like it, it's a reality and it's coming down the pike. So I would suggest that you prepare for it. Be, I think, very prudent about things that you're spending money on for your own particular practice in your group, in your hospital. Um but I think that that is on the horizon. I think that trying to project out into the future that the traditional fee-for-service model is going to continue in perpetuity, I, I think may be a little bit of a pipe dream. Now, having said that, I heard that 30 years ago in the early to mid-1990s. Everything at that time, the thought was that it was going to go to things like capitated model where you would be having covered lives, which is terrible for what we do because doing surgery 
is actually not going to be sustainable in that type of a model. And so there was actually an advantage to providing less care and it just didn't make, make any sense. I think we were fortunate enough that that went away, but I think value-based care will be different. I think the ability to demonstrate better outcomes on your patients, and that doesn't necessarily mean cherry picking just the healthy patients. I mean, we've done a very good job, and I know Brian, you're aware of this, is that even our high risk people, if you got the if you have the right protocols in, in place, you can demonstrate effective care that is sustainable in any economic model. So I think we should be really ready to go in, in that regard. Kevin Bozik, who's a champion of that concept, I've learned a lot from Kevin. If you have the opportunity to listen to Kevin speak, either at the Academy or other forums, he's got some great insight into that. And I really am a full believer that that's where we're going to be headed. Yeah, I think the landscape of just where surgeons are practicing, you know, we've talked a lot in our AUKUS YAG group about, you know, there's a high turnover rate in the first few years of practice. And I think a lot of that is contractual financial things that young surgeons didn't anticipate. So I think you're right that there's going to be a big shift in payers and payment reform over the coming decades. You know, we've taken up about an hour of your time, so we, we don't want to take any more of your time. We are so thankful that you gave us our time. You really are an inspiration and clearly your commitment to your family, to the practice of orthopedics, to your patient care is, I would say, unrivaled. So we thank you for all you've done for arthroplasty surgeons, for the patients, and most certainly for giving us an hour of your time to chat. We hope this talk will be interesting for our listenership. Well, thanks, Jesse, Peter, and Brian. I appreciate the time. And I look forward to reconvening this group, perhaps in Dallas in November. So it could be a great time. We look forward to it. Thanks again. Thank you to our listeners. We encourage you to follow us on Twitter at at AUKUS underscore YAG. And please come out and join us at the AUKUS annual meeting in Dallas in early November for the Young Arthroplasty Group educational event on Thursday, November 2nd at 4 p.m., as well as our social event, our second annual karaoke that same evening at about 8.30 or 9 o'clock. Details will be emailed out by AUKUS. Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.